Hi, everybody. Welcome. It's another episode of The Yard Sign, the most important and relevant podcast in politics, coming to you as always Monday nights. Thank you so much for watching. Before we get started, please be sure to subscribe, like, share, comment as we get through the show. We'd love to hear from you. So, uh, again, we can't appreciate you enough as we, of course, get closer and closer to the 2020 elections, hoping to make an impact uh, on these elections and bringing you the latest in news and politics from around the country and around the world. Today, going to be very Trump heavy. All right. We're going to talk uh, about uh, how the president has been handling various aspects of uh, the coronavirus and uh, the uh, protests from George Floyd. And, uh, you know, obviously what effect that's going to have on his reelection campaign. Uh, but before I get started, let me run into uh, introducing our guest panelists for today. We've got Chris Kylan to my left and uh, Chris Chambers joining me remotely from a, a very uh, enticing location, if, uh, if I do say so myself. Uh, we'll, we'll let him talk about where he's hanging out in just a minute. Uh, but as I mentioned, lots to talk about in regards to the president. We're going to kick things off with uh, maybe the biggest story uh, directly tied to him in regards to the George Floyd protests. Uh, and of course, uh, you can't not be following what's happening in regards to these protests that have not only consumed the nation, but the country. Uh, but, uh, you know, the president himself, you know, has kind of been playing the fence on this uh, situation. Really, it's a complex, complex issue. Um, but one of the biggest moments in all of this that I think will be remembered, of course, uh, was the walk from the White House across the St. John's Cathedral. Uh, which had actually been set fire to the day before by by rioters, um, and uh, fortunately minor damage to the basement level of the church. Uh, and uh, what uh, they are saying is a sign of solidarity uh, with the church. Uh, he then, of course, uh, proceeded to walk across the street uh, and take uh, some pictures out in front of the, the cathedral, uh, holding a Bible. Uh, guys, let's go ahead and jump into this. Uh, I know uh, a little bit of uh, where I think Christopher Kylan stands, so I'm actually going to uh, toss this over to Chambers. Chambers, we kind of lost your, hold on, we think we lost his, uh, there we go. Uh, Chris Chambers, um, you know, he walks out there surrounded by Secret Service, they, of course, kind of parted the protester sea. Uh, we'll get into the whether or not they were being violent and tear gas and all that in just a minute. But overall, what, what was your original kind of sentiment? What, 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 did you, what was your perception, uh, feelings about seeing the president walk across the St. John's Cathedral for this kind of PR moment with the Bible? All right, John, thanks for having me once again. So I think the president might have been trying to, that might have been his way of trying to show unity. I kind of bring a religious aspect into it, but there's so many other things that went with that. So I think the controversy came where the protesters said they were pepper sprayed and moved out by the military. And I don't know the exact story, but I think I understand, understand his message. I just think maybe the tactics and the way it came across, it, it could have been handled a little bit better. But, but, I, but from my perspective, that was his way of trying to show unity for the country. Uh, and I don't know if I can, you know, completely get on his side of trying to unify the nation during this time period. I think that was just one way of trying to do it. But his message, the way he conveyed it, uh, with the protesters, and if they set fire to the establishment the night before, I could understand that, that use of force. But mixing 
those two, the youth support, and trying to do unity in a, in a, in a building that represents that religious uh, stance. I, I think the, mis- the message kind of got, uh, you know, misconstrued. So that's my stance on it. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't know the side with that situation. Well, you know, that's the big problem, okay? And look, having worked on both the inside and the outside of political moments like this, uh, as we can call it, um, I certainly think it was more of a PR stunt, you know, maybe than it was, you know, his intent his intent to try to show a sign of unity, um, especially given that they had to uh, move the protesters, uh, you know, the curfew hadn't hit yet. Um, and then of course, whether or not, uh, th- that incited, uh, some, uh, throwing of objects. And then of course the tear gas from the park service or, uh, Arlington police or whoever it was, uh, you know, that ensued. I, I think it was just bad timing all around. Um, and I, I've just, to me, I, I never like you when politicians, candidates use the church as a prop, um, any church or, or their religion for that matter. Um, and I kind of felt that that's what this was. Uh, if it was a symbol of unity, I don't think, as you said, I don't think that got across. Uh, it was certainly obviously lo- uh, lost in the coverage of it, being that they had to focus on what became the bigger problem, was, which was the dispersal of the protesters. Uh, Christopher Collin, uh, <laughs> let's get your take on this. Uh, you know, how are you feeling about this? Did you really think that, uh, you know, what was this really about in your eyes? What was this moment at St. John's about? All right, so the grand message I received from it was, all right, so the night before, the, the White House got blacked out. The lights were shut down. So basically, if anyone tried to infiltrate the White House, uh, they could use night vision to see them, and they couldn't see whoever was going to come at them from Secret Service. So Trump was locked in a bunker that night before, and you had the entire left talking about, oh, you coward, what do you want to go in your bunker? You, you think you, you, think you uh, aren't safe, or you think you, you're scared and you'd run away? So at that point, I, as a, the bold person he is, I feel like he was going to go anywhere, whether it was uh, the St. John's Church or a Five Guys Burgers and Fries and have a burger at the end of the street if it was a block away from the White House. Um, I really think, so as far as, it kind of shows some relation to America. Americans across big cities in the country uh, were locked in their homes, were afraid to leave the house. We still have people in our group of our friends, our personal friends, that are afraid to leave their houses for fear of getting caught in the wrong side of the protest and having to drive extra time home or having to worry about getting dragged out of their car and beaten. So I feel like this was his way of saying, no, America, we've had enough. We're not dealing with this. You can protest, but you're not going to do it in a violent manner. And we're going to disperse this crowd because they were becoming violent, uh, throwing frozen water bottles and bricks at police officers, which is, as far as I'm concerned, that's a good reason to have your protest disperse. Um, so he was showing some solidarity and showing, we're not going to put up with this. I'm walking to the church and I'm going to do what I want. So. As far as Trump using religious, uh, you know, religious symbols uh, to, to get his point across, I don't know enough about the man's personal re- religious life to have a good, you know, intake on that. But I don't think I think it had to do with some of the COVID stuff too, with churches being uh, locked away. But yeah, but that's my point, though. I mean, we, you know, we're talking about, you know, was this about the coronavirus or was this about 
uh, the George Floyd protests yeah. and the timing of it, again, I don't feel was great because they, again, had to, you know, disperse the protesters. They they started moving the protesters so the president could cross, you know, the, the street, per se, over to St. John's Cathedral. And at that point, it's when the protesters began throwing things at, uh, again, Secret Service, the police, uh, the Park Service. Uh, and that's when the tear gas ensued. Uh, and whether or not there was tear gas, that's a whole nother, you know, part of this conversation. Oh, uh, not that it's entirely relevant. I, I well, believe, so I watched uh, Kaylee McEnany's press release about it this morning or sometime earlier this week. And she said there was no tear gas used, no rubber bullets used. And I feel like at that point, like the Park Service even came out and said, we didn't do that. Um, so at that point, you have to have, like, who do you believe? Like, are you going to have some kind of conspiracy? The Park Service and the, the press secretary are lying to us. Um, and she's also said that the protesters were asked three times via loudspeaker very early in the morning before this thing was even planned or before it was executed three times enough time to disperse that they should leave because of what was happening. Um, so I feel like you have to be some kind of conspiracy theorist or call someone a liar in order to say that this was they were being peaceful and they weren't, you know, they were being tear gassed and such. The, the protest was already taking place. Uh, in my opinion, it could have waited, let's say, another hour or maybe a half hour. And I know that, you know, obviously they were trying to do this in the daylight, um, you know, before, you know, before it got dark outside. Um, but given that there was a protest happening, uh, again, timeline wise, it seems to me that it was a peaceful protest until they started to part the crowd for the president to cross the street. Um, and that's when the, the, the problems ensued. And again, I think by having them had to do that i think you you lost the message whatever that message may be because again now we don't even know was this about unifying the country uh through the church because of the coronavirus or was this a, a kind of uh you know thumbing your nose at the at the rioters you know because they tried to burn the church down and were unsuccessful i mean even the leaders of this particular church were angry at the president because they were using it as kind of a safe house area for the protesters to drink water, you know, take care of any injuries. Uh, you know, this was a, a, a safe place, you know, that they, again, had to break up and 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 disperse uh, because of the president's uh, visit there. And, and again, I just don't think it, it accomplished what, whatever it was he was trying to accomplish. Well, I, I don't, I'll just have one last thought on this, on this. Um, so if you look at the photograph behind my head, you can see somewhere around right here, it says, all are welcome. And the fact that a religious person is saying the president is not welcome at her church or is not, not a, a, an acceptable guest at her church, that's not God's word. That is not what God says. She yeah, but that's not, that's not what they're saying. the faith. It's not that, I mean, every president has been welcomed to St. John's Cathedral, and that's not what she's saying at all. The, 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 the message there was the fact that, again, there were protesters, there were people that were using this space, again, to stay hydrated, to recover from injuries that they might have sustained. And they then had to move those people, evacuate the church, all for the president to come across. It wasn't that he wasn't welcome. It's just yeah, that I've the timing couldn't Brits have been worse. Uh, taxing on the body, so hydrating while doing that is a good idea. <laughs> well, 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 Jonathan and Chris, and, you know, she even said that she was notified that she had to leave the church. So it was really a message of unity. I think the president or his staff would have reached out to her, say, hey, we want to do this. And maybe inside a church would have been a more appropriate venue. But the fact that, you know, she didn't have any say-so in it, she was rushed out of her own uh, house of worship. 
it, it kind of goes to, you know, what, what the messaging really was. I think he was just trying to show some type of unity in his own way. But I just think the way he went about it was, was totally misconstrued wrong, and it just took away from the message overall. Yeah. Well, and that's, a, you know, I'd say a good segue into the next topic, which is the Trump versus our military generals. Uh, you know, the most notable one being, of course, uh, General Mattis, uh, who served in the Trump administration for a time. And, uh, and, and they're basically concerned with some of the things the president has said, uh, some of the actions he's taken, especially in regards to these protests and uh, bringing in the military to try to uh, you know, quell some of the rioting, some of the looting. Um, and, you know, their concern is, is that, uh, you know, he may be crossing some lines here constitutionally. Uh, Chris Chambers, you know, you uh, are a member of our military. Uh, you know, you, you, you're still serving our country and uh, you, you're also a former uh, law enforcement officer. And so, you know, I know you've read through some of these statements that these generals have made. Uh, you know, do you feel that their concerns are founded or is this uh, part of the political theater as we get closer to November? Listen, General Mathis is one of the most respected members in military history. I mean, his word is gold. What he says goes. And the fact that he would come out and, and, and speak out against the president, it, it says volumes. And and a lot of people say, oh, it's political because he used to work for Trump and this and that. You know, I think he's a man of impeccable integrity. And uh, the president using the military uh, in a, you know, politicized manner, I don't, I don't think it's correct. I, I just don't think it's appropriate. And, and General Mathis came out and spoke against that. And he hasn't been the only one. Uh, General Kelly, has voiced his opinion about it. And, and as late of yesterday, General Colin Powell has uh, said that he does not support the president with, uh, with his actions. So I think, you know, and those aren't the only three. You have some other top generals that spoke out against the president. So I think for that to be happening now, it, it sends a very strong message. I mean, these are guys, you cannot question their integrity. These are guys that served their country 40 years plus. So for, for them to say that, it's sending a very strong message. And I, I think it's something that should not be dismissed. It should be weighed heavily and, and, and thought about. A lot of people should be thinking about what are they saying? What is the reason for their saying it and why they're saying it now? I, I think you have to kind of give some credit to their background and why they're saying it at this time when the nation really needs unity. Well, you know, one of the only one, I think, in that list that you mentioned that I see more, you know, in a political light would, of course, be Colin Powell. I mean, he's been uh, supporting the Democratic Party since 2012 and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, was a Republican for a long time and ascended through the ranks, mostly under Republican presidents. And for him to switch sides back in 2012 and support the Democratic Party was obviously a devastating blow to Republicans. Um, but now I just, um, you know, for me, he's become more of a political figure than a military one, but I do take notice and, and it does make me take pause when you do see other generals and members of the military who come out uh, and, and question the constitutionality of what some of the things that the president's doing. Chris or Kylan, you know, uh, you know, are these um, generals, are they kind of crossing the line in your eyes? I mean, I, this is really the first president that I've seen uh, severely question and criticize uh, high-ranking levels of our military. I mean, you know, even to that extent, do you feel it's appropriate? 
So I have no problem with having an opinion. I mean, I, I know military, in the military, you're supposed to go with what your commander says, but I have no problem with someone voicing an opinion, but it doesn't keep me or the president from telling them they're wrong. And in this case, I, I think they have a, a case to defend that they are wrong. Um, so if you looked at some of the videos from Minneapolis, it looked like Baghdad in 05. Like every building for a couple blocks was burned, smashed, looked awful. So imagine as a citizen, and a lot of the major cities have the same thing happening. Imagine as a, as a citizen, you live in Minneapolis, you have your business and your home in the same block, and your, your, your mayor and your governor are doing nothing about it. It is the government's first job and most important job to defend you, your life, and your property. When a mayor or a governor tells the police to stand down and let rioters do what they're going to do or don't put the resources into stopping that from happening, they are failing you as a government. So as a president, you see this happening. You have empathy for your citizens, people that are law-abiding citizens who are just wanting to have their life not get destroyed. Their insurance is going to cover it because of acts of war or you know riots, whatever, aren't often covered by insurance. You have to have you have to do something as a responsible leader to do to, to quell what's going on and to serve your citizens properly. Um, whether it's constitutional or not, I think the Insurrection Act does cover that. Uh, if I'm mistaken, so be it. Uh, tell me in the comments. Let me know. But I do think that there's a case to be made that it's an appropriate action when the government below him is failing. I don't know. What What do you think? Back to you, Johnny. Yeah. Well, again, uh, I, I, it, this is obviously someone who is not of a political background. You know, he's not a constitutional scholar. I mean, this is somebody who oftentimes shoots uh, from the hip. He trusts his gut when it comes to making decisions um, and and in in putting forth uh, you know ideas and policy proposals and and so I don't expect him to be one hundred percent in line with the Constitution, um, but. You know, again, I have to take a pause and I have to be concerned when our some of our leading military members are saying, hey, like this is getting out of hand. He's going too far. Uh, and 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 I wonder if, again, is he basically just doing this on a whim and he just, you know, goes out there, says what he wants to say? Or is he prior to this running this by any of his advisors uh, in getting some insight on whether or not. Uh, it would be constitutional for him to do some of these things, like deploying the military uh, to certain states, you know, to quell these riots and looters. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against it. I mean, I think, uh, you know, that is the role of the military is to protect the government, uh, protect, I'm sorry, the country, both within its boundaries and outside of its boundaries. Uh, but again, some people are trying to say that, you know, that he's turning the military against its own citizens. And I don't see it that way at all, because, again, these rioters and these looters need to be stopped. Um, I'm all in favor of these folks protesting, uh, George Floyd protesting, you know, their their issues with police departments around the country. But it's a whole nother thing once they get into destructive behavior. Um you know, which which leads us right into uh, our next topic, you know, which is the development of these uh, protests about George Floyd. Uh, Chris Chambers, you know, you were so gracious to join us uh, right after these things started to unfold. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you, like all of us, have been watching it pretty closely. It's pretty amazing, right, to see how it's unfolded, not only across our state here in Florida, but across the country and now even uh, to other parts of the world. Uh, what does that say to you about this overall issue? Hey, Jonathan, I, I just think it's, it's not just an issue in America. I think it's an issue that's worldwide. And to go back to one of your previous stations, 
statements where the president may not be acting within the Constitution, I think that's a problem. I think that's why you have a lot of generals speaking out right now, these distinguished military leaders. Uh, if, if he's not acting in line with the Constitution, that they're not going to support him. And I think that's what we're seeing. It's not just happening here in America. This racism issue is happening in UK, uh, London, Paris, Australia, all, all over the world. And, uh, you know, at first the president said, well, he told the governor that other countries are, are laughing at us. I don't think they're laughing, laughing at us. I think they're standing in solidarity with us. You see the protests happening everywhere, thousands of people all over the world. So I think, you know, racial inequality, racial injustice, it's a, it's a serious issue, not just here in America, but throughout the world for people of color. And, you know, when people see what took place with George Floyd and the, the protesting start, people are fed up. And it's not just here, it's across the world. So I think that should send a message to the president that these issues are not just here in America, but they're all over the world. And I think he should take this as an opportunity to maybe let's lead the world in reform, uh, making sure that people of color, black, brown, yellow, whatever, they have the same uh, chances, the same opportunities as, as white people. And I think it's the time for him to step up, be a leader, but we can lead the world in that. And I really can't, well, I'm going to say it's not, I really can't say, I don't think he's done that. I think people are looking for a leader of unity right now. And when it comes to the president, I think people are seeing a lot of divide where we really need somebody to unify this country and make the necessary changes so we can be America where equality is not just for one race, but it's equality for all. It's a great point, Chris, uh, you know, and you're absolutely right. Look, uh, I like to call the balls and strikes as I see them. And truthfully, while uh, Trump's been obviously very successful at unifying the base of the party, in a moment like this, we do need a unifying president. Much like after 9-11, we saw George W. Bush unify the country, you know, behind the message that we were going to go after the terrorists that committed, uh, you know, that terrorist act. And you would hope that in a way that Trump would kind of galvanize the country, being that he is is supportive of uh, of the issue at large. I mean, he came out right away and said he was uh, having the FBI and the Department of Justice launch an investigation. He showed his his, his remorse and, and uh, disgust with the Minneapolis Police Department and uh, you know what happened to George Floyd. Um, but I don't think he's focused enough on that uh, um, and is focused too much on uh, you know the protests and the looting and the rioting. Um, and, and it's a difficult balance, you know, but it's one of those things where, yeah, right now I think we need more of a unifying voice. And I don't know that, that that's in him. I don't know that that's uh, something within him that he has even to bring out. Uh, Christopher Collin, some of this violence, you know, and some of the looting has calmed down in, in, in the, the parts of the state where this issue isn't as prevalent. But we continue to see outbreaks in California, in Minneapolis, um, in New York City. Um, <clears throat> do you feel the message at this point is being lost? Do you feel that, you know, the president was appropriate in calling the military? The message is getting lost. And it's really unfortunate because... It's really unfortunate because, so I think the message we should all be giving right now, and the message I think that's caused a lot of the problems we're having is we're telling young minorities, we're telling them, you don't have a snowball's chance in hell of succeeding in this world in America. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You have the best chances any race in America of doing the best you can. Um, I do believe racism exists. I do believe that 
people are malicious in very, you know, a very small percentage of cases. But I do think that there are no policies in America. It is illegal to discriminate based on race. Um, I, I don't know what else we can do other than expect perfection from the human heart, which is impossible. The human heart is flawed. The human soul is flawed. There are a certain percentage of people that are absolute bastards. And I hate people that, I hate that this exists and that the rest of us, the 99% of good people, have to take the beating for what happens from pieces of shit. Um, so I, I, I really think that, tell me what you think, Chris Chambers. Tell me, I really think that if we delivered a message of, to everybody, you can succeed in this world. It's on your shoulders. There might be some pieces of crap that are going to get in your way, but you have the chance with people that are good to overcome that. Most people want to help you in this world. Uh, I think that if that message were delivered, it would make the world a better place. I don't know. I totally agree with you. Uh, you got to understand that you have a lot of people from different backgrounds that may not have the same opportunity. I'm, I'm black, whether y'all know it or not, and I, I think I've uh, did pretty good in life, but there's a lot of people that didn't have my upbringing, uh, didn't come from a, a two-parent home. It, it's just a lot of barriers in place, and that's basically systemic racism. I know a lot of people don't want to say that term, but the shit happens. <clears throat> but in your opinion, I mean, uh, even though this is going to become a global movement now, uh, do you feel the message is still there, or is it slipping away? No, I, I think I think the message is still there. I think that it needs to be a lot to correct the racial injustices and inequalities that exist not just in America, throughout the world. So I, we have the looters, the, you know, agitators. But I think that 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 uh, overall, that overarching message is still there, and we just have to stay on task. And, and back to what Chris said, yeah, yeah, racism is illegal, but not somebody certain opportunities because their color is illegal. So that's more when you look at the overt racism, the, 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 the substantial racism that happens in your corporate boardrooms, your military award rooms, that, I think that's the racism that's more detrimental to America. And once we can get past that, uh, I think this country can be a much better place. Let me give you a quick example. There was a Navy captain, a retired Navy captain, who got caught on Facebook, Facebook Live, uh, with this racist rant, you know, talking about, so I got to go give the black lady in the office extra credit, blah, blah, blah. So I thought about that. I'm like, this guy's retired. He obviously feels some type of way towards African-Americans. How many African-Americans under his command throughout his tenure in the Navy did he screw over? How many officer evaluation reports uh, for African-Americans did he rate them lower when they could have got higher? How many enlisted evaluations enlisted people did he screw over? So that's the type of racism that I think is more detrimental that happens. And I'm just using the military for one example. But that's the shit that has to stop. We have to look down in our hearts and just be better people and be better Americans. Yeah, the, the overt racism where like we had in Georgia where you got two white guys chasing down a black guy and shooting them. Yeah, that, that's the that's the like, oh yeah, that shit's obviously racism. Yeah. But it's that that subtle racism that happens in everyday life that I think is more harmful. Well, and to your point, Chris, I mean, when protesters and leaders in this movement uh, and leaders in the community talk about systemic racism, that's that's what they're getting at. Is that right? Correct. That's absolutely right. Systemic racism, whether it be uh, on your job, whether it be the criminal justice system where, you know, different sentencing guidelines or, you know, I said it earlier, for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine or, for example, uh, there's a black lady who lied about where she lived so her kids could go to a, a, 
a better school in a better school district. She got five years in jail. Therefore, what, what was what, Felicity Huffman, who does the college scam stuff to get what, 14, yep. 10 days in jail? Right. That's the type of shit that has to change in our country. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's uh, that's a perfect example that, you know, I bring up time and time again because it couldn't be clear. I mean, and we're talking about public school versus, you know, colleges and universities in that kind of situation. Uh, go ahead, Colin. you were going to say? So, yeah, I was I was going to add to what, what Chris said. I mean, so actually this weekend I went to meet a guy from Facebook Marketplace to buy this camera gimbal. And uh, nice. he was a black guy. He didn't like being called black. He I didn't call him that, but he said he prefers to be called brown because he is brown. Uh, anyway, he we, we had this conversation. There's this guy I met to buy something from. We just began talking about the podcast. He's in video production. Um, he, he asked what the podcast was about, and I told him it's a it's about politics and we're we're conservatives, etc. And we got into we talked for literally an hour and fifteen minutes about this entire recent situation. And he told me all the things he's been through in his life, as far as like like Chris was saying, the subtle racism. Like he's married to a blonde haired blue eyed white woman. And when he goes into a rental car place, he, they asked to be the, the person asked to take care of them separately or like not like because they didn't know, but they were like didn't acknowledge that they were together. Um, and that kind of a lot of the stuff that he told me broke my heart. Like I was like, man, this. I, it's definitely not as bad as it was in the 60s, but man, to hear that stuff going on today, the, the fact that people don't even really mean to or they don't like, I don't know, it, it doesn't click that maybe they should yeah. think through what they're doing a little bit better than they are. And, well, uh, there's a lot of biases still out there, you know, it, you know, the simple ones that, you know, when you're, uh, you know, when you cross the street, you know, when you see certain people coming your way or, you know, if, or you lock your doors, you know, when you see certain people coming your way. These are things that uh, there are individuals out there who do this subconsciously, don't even realize they're doing it. But these are biases towards the, those people that they see themselves with out and about in the community. And just like you said, you know, it happens in a very, very subtle way. You know, these are what they call microaggressions, you know, to use the, you know, the more popular liberal term. Um, but it's unfortunate because it is very revealing of, again, some of the biases that we have as a culture, you know, but what bothers me always when talking about racism is, is that there are people out there who feel that this is an American problem and that how, that somehow this is exclusive to the United States where, I mean, if anything, the racism is more overt in other countries, in Latin America, in Europe, uh, than, than it ever uh, is here, uh, at least today uh, in the United States. And so, um, you know, it's great to see that this movement has carried over and inspired other countries to to take action. Again, I'm not in favor of the destruction that's taken place, even when we look at the riots happening and the protests happening in, in, uh, in the UK. Um, but there is a message being sent there when you see them toppling over statues of slave traders and throwing them into the water. You know, those are things that where I think I've evolved, you know, in the sense that where I, and obviously this needs to be done on a case by case basis, but I think some of these statues do belong in a museum. They do belong maybe somewhere else more appropriate than out in the public where they are honored, you know, and revered. Um, and again, I'm not saying all monuments or all statues 
I'm just saying that, you know, this, this is something that needs to be revisited and addressed by these communities that have these statues and monuments and say, hey, is this really necessary or is this really the message that we want to send to the community in 2020? Guys, let's go ahead and keep it moving uh, because, again, all of this kind of funnels down to a movement that we're seeing now across the country, which is the lack of support for our law enforcement and the defunding of police. Uh, you know, we saw $150,000 uh, being removed from the budget uh, and for the police officers in the city of Los Angeles. Um, the city of Minneapolis, their city council has now vowed uh, basically promising to disband the police department. Um, and again, there's there's nuances there. Uh, but in general, there is now this movement to defund the police. Uh, and of course, what exactly does that mean? Chris Chambers, um, you, I mean, this has got to be kind of a tough topic for you because, and, uh, and, and or maybe not, I mean, but is this really the answer? Is this, you know, specifically, let's start with Minneapolis. Is defunding that police department, disbanding that police department, the right response uh, to this situation? Uh, Jonathan, absolutely not. I do not agree with defunding any law enquestment agency, law enquestment agency uh, to any society. And that's going to be the foundation of any society. So I think people are overreacting right now. They're just trying to put uh, actions of one bad law enforcement officer on a whole department or, or four. But no, defunding is not the answer. I think we need to give more money to the law enforcement agencies, especially in the area of training, uh, police academies, uh, bias training, racist relation training, uh, de-escalation. That's where that money needs to go. Definitely not defunding. I think you should increase those budgets to make more better quality police officers who are more representative of the uh, the communities they serve. Uh, It's just a tough time right now. I've, I've had a lot that's with my African-American law enforcement buddies who they're getting it tough right now. They're out on the front lines and they're getting called Uncle Tom and this and that. So it's hard and you have a lot of people questioning, not only black police officers, but white police officers, do I want to stay in this profession? I think the city of New York, NYPD had over 600 people submit their, so 600 police officers submit their resignation over the last couple of days. If we're, if we're losing the black officers in our community, that's that's going to be detrimental. So yeah. defunding the police department is definitely not the way to go. And I hope that doesn't happen. And I hope our local elected officials prevent that from happening and realize the need and how imperative it is to have law enforcement there. Because if somebody's bringing to your house, who's going to call a social worker? Who's going to call your neighbor? No, you need police officers to come there and stop that threat. We can live a safe life. So Chambers, if I can get you back for a second, you know, we just saw here the city of Tampa uh, approved the additional funding for body cameras uh, after they were heavily criticized for not doing so. Um, You know, they all of a sudden, you know, you had a whole group of liberals be fiscally conservative, uh, you know, at maybe the worst time possible. Uh, But it's also statistically known that body cameras or just body cameras aren't necessarily effective in reducing uh, incidents like this. Um, And so uh, from your experience, uh, you know, based on what you've read and what you've seen work um, in, in, you know, in in the tougher parts of town, what, what do you feel? I mean, you, you talked, you touched on some of those things. Where do you feel the money should be concentrated? Where do you think the, the focus should be put on to try to avoid things like this taking place? Well, well, I think body cameras, I think the money they're allocating those funds for that. I think 
they need to do that. I think that's a start. Uh, for example, when I used to be a police officer, uh, I didn't have a body camera, but I had a partner who had a body camera. If I go to back him up on a traffic stop, he always say, hey, Chris, the game is on. So I think when you know as a police officer that you're being recorded, not that you're out there acting reckless anyway, but that's going to be something in the back of your mind. We're going to conduct that encounter uh, with somebody on a traffic stop or whatever in the most professional uh, manner possible. Now, that's not saying that body cameras are going to stop all types of uh, conduct because they're uh, related on the police department releasing that footage. You know, you have your... your uh, well, yeah, you know, you're different acts to release everything, but if it's an act of investigation, it doesn't have to be released. But I think if most officers, all officers know that their encounters are being recorded, it's just going to change their way of behavior. And as humans, you hate to think that we need that. You think that everybody's going to act the right way naturally, but I think that's the first step. And, and I think it's a good thing that Tampa Police Department got those funds, the city council uh, approved it. So I think that's just one... Uh, one step in the right direction. Thanks, Chris. And, uh, you know, to that note, a lot of people wonder, well, why don't more police departments do these body camera programs and that sort of thing? And actually, Chris Chambers talked, touched on one of the points that makes this so costly is, is that because once you institute this program, now you have to manage all of that data, all of that footage. Uh, FOIA requests start coming in like crazy. And so there's a huge amount of paperwork and administration that has to take place. Uh, and that's why these programs are so costly. It's not even the equipment. It's everything that comes along with it. And that's why there are so many police departments that are hesitant to do it uh, because it is such a huge financial and administrative burden um, to just get this program off the ground. Um, and so totally understanding of that, uh, I, again, I think you need to kind of read the room in this situation and realize that the city of Tampa did the right thing uh, by by agreeing to uh, grant this funding uh, for the cameras. Uh, and and just given the size of the city that we are, I think it's it's, it's due uh, and possibly even overdue. So for Kyle and, and, you know, and, John, and Jonathan, Jonathan yeah. I'm gonna say one more quick point. And it's the storage. That's, that's the part of uh, a camera. But storing all of that data, that's where the cost comes in. So I'm going to challenge a lot of companies out there. These companies that we saw last week putting the black box on their Instagram, uh, or they saying they're donating $100 million to social inequality. If you have a smaller police department, how about these big companies? Donate that money to their police department to help with these costs associated with body cameras. That's something you can do to really affect change. You know, where they put their money, who knows where it's going. But I can say if you donate to a police department, especially a smaller one, that's a way that you can show that you really care about the African-American community. In addition to, you care about your law enforcement agency, put the money, put the money where your mouth is. Okay. That's a, that's an amazing idea, you know, and maybe even the clip of the show right there. I think that's a great tip uh, because uh, I'm all about the public private partnerships. Uh, now for Kylan, you know, uh, I've always been intrigued by the libertarian philosophy when it comes to small government. And I think we're about to put that to the test in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, is this going too far um, what do you kind of see happening in, in this movement to defund the police departments? One of the things I learned from Thomas Sowell, my favorite economist, taught me everything I know, best economist of all time as far as I'm concerned, is that low income, minority, any kind of underprivileged community needs police more than anybody else. If you take the funds away from police or dissolve the police department, you are screwing over every shop owner, every homeowner, every citizen in that area 
who is being victimized by criminals that, that come along with lower income areas, uh, they, they're, they're going to have no recourse. I mean, you have like any example of low income areas, you have higher costs of goods because they have to hire security guards to, to guard their stores. Their insurance premiums are higher because and the, the actuaries have good reason to because they're, they're being stolen from or, you know, have more claims being made in, in those kind of neighborhoods. So you are guaranteed to victimize the people who need you most in this situation. So regarding how to improve police departments, I think that you need to, first and foremost, as a small government person, I think we need to have a private company oversee budgets because I see public service can just piss away money left and right. And I, I've seen well, it through people that I know. To that point, I mean, Chris, you know, in the budget for the city of Miami, I've, you know, some other people have been posting, you know, graphs of their city spending budget. And almost all of them hover around 20 to 25% just for public safety. I mean, this is this is a lot of money to be spending just on public safety. And, and now, uh, you know, you wonder, are they, you know, the fact that they think that they're going to be better off by reducing the investment on that. I don't see how, you know, you know, two and two make five. Anything involving life safety, like a police officer with, with firearms or like bullet protection or firefighters with, you know, their, their SCBA and fire trucks, everything is built. So it's well able to handle whatever's thrown at it. So I can see the, the enhanced costs there, but I do think that anything that government has its hands in costs way more than it has to. Uh, but in an effort to increase officer quality, I suppose, one of the things that I would propose would be to increase officer pay. Listen, these guys come into the departments, even in big cities, making $45,000 a year approximately to start. And they're getting shot at, they're getting hit, they're getting stabbed, or people are trying to do that on an everyday basis. So it's not a super rewarding job to get into. Therefore, that shrinks the amount of candidates that are willing to do that job. I mean, I, if, if you're looking for a job in that kind of pay grade, you can go to AT&T and Verizon and sell iPhones with zero risk, flexible schedule for that same kind of pay. Um, so I think if you were to increase the officer's pay, you'd have more people apply, you'd be more picky with who you choose to do the job, and that would result in a higher quality officer. So that's one proposal I have. Um, as far as the body cams you're talking about, from what I've seen watching these things for the last decade as they've kind of rolled out across the country, we've seen more body cam footage exonerate police officers than indict them as far as I'm concerned. We, we've seen a, a large discrepancy in proportion as far as that goes. The one thing we have to do, though, as citizens is know what is excessive force, know what is not, because I've still seen these body cam footages where someone has a knife and they're like, oh, why did he have to shoot him? He, got a, he has a knife, you know, like, because there's a disparity in force. They're not understanding that someone can kill you really easily with a, with a knife within 21 feet. So with the body cams, I think we have to, and we're not going to see this from the media, we're going to see them play the card where the cop was always wrong. We need to understand what what deadly force is justified, when it's justified, and accept that when people are killed and it was justified, that it is just so. So I think that's a big hurdle we have to overcome. I mean, the funding and the storage is one thing, but having the average citizen no police work in self-defense principles is more important to, to make that useful. I just I want to add one thing here. If you start defunding the police in this country, you're asking for a race war. 
I, I hate to say it, the living table is going to happen. What we saw happen in uh, Georgia with uh, McMichaels uh, running down uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, that shit, you're going to start seeing that everywhere. And then you're going to see groups like the Black Panthers running around neighborhoods with their AR-15s. Nothing's good going to come of that. But like I said, you need law enforcement to keep the law and order. And that's a hard thing for me to say right now because the focus is on the law enforcement officers, the small few who have used their powers and, and killed somebody. So you just can't paint all law enforcement with one brush. So you had a few bad apples. That's like saying all the protesters, you have a couple of agitators out there riding and looting shit. You just can't say, well, all protesters are bad. Just like you just can't say all cops are bad. So back to my point, you need law enforcement. Defunding law enforcement is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And if that ever happens in this country, I'm moving to the Dominican Republic. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, thank you again for coming on the show. Christopher Kyle and Chris Chambers, you guys have been great. As always, uh, coming up, we're going to be talking to Todd Jennings, chairman of the Pinellas County Republican Party, uh, to get an election season update from him. But uh, on that note, uh, guys, given the topics we've discussed today, um, I, the, the way that things have kind of unfurled throughout these protests and the coronavirus, uh, do, do you think this is going to change the outcome come November? Uh, and what is your prediction? Does Trump still have a solid chance at re-election? Or uh, is this now in more of a toss-up territory? You, you know, Jonathan, uh I think it's more than a toss-up territory. I, I think with the uh, military, respected military generals coming out and one of them being supporting Biden, I, I, I think it's going to be very interesting in November uh, who people vote for. My prediction is I think you're going to have a lot of conservatives jumping ship. And I hate to say that, but I think this country needs a leader, a leader right now to unify unite this this country, bring everybody back together. And I think that's going to be a lot of people who are voting for. And in my opinion, Trump has not shown that yet. Kyle, go for it. Well, I, I understand what you're saying, Chris uh, Chambers. And I, I think that maybe we need someone that's going to help heal and unite a little bit more. But it's Joe Biden is an incompetent, doddering old man. And him stumbling his way through life is not going to be any any better i mean i, I don't see I, that as i agree being, i agree and i, I don't well, see him pandering because i don't i think that's generally what he is is pandering um well look the truth of the matter is is that biden's record is absolutely atrocious when it comes to racial issues i mean but the average voter i don't think is going to look that deep into it and they're not going to hold him accountable to it right because it was so far in the past although they absolutely should he's got a legislature record, he should have to defend it, um, or at least explain himself for it. Um, that being said, I think Chris's message is actually, uh, Chambers's message is the, the strongest one, I think, that's going to be relevant in this election. You know, are people going to decide that they need a president that's going to unify the country? Uh, or, or are they going to say, hey, you know, um, before this coronavirus thing broke out, everything was great. Um, this George Floyd stuff doesn't really have anything to do with Trump. You know, I can see that perspective as well. But again, the the emotional baggage of what's happening right now, I think, is going to weigh far heavier on the voters. And uh, and if Trump doesn't do something about it here uh, in, the, in the short time frame we have, it could cost him the election. Um, yeah. and, and, and so you hope that whatever comes out of Congress is going to help move the needle in the right direction. Well, I think it goes down to another issue. Out of 300 million people in this country, 
these are the only two choices. I mean, man, if it weren't for this nomination process, I think any three of us right now could be a viable president, a viable candidate for president. Yeah. Well, look, uh, you know, personally, personally, I think, yeah, I think the two party system is outdated. I mean, uh, and I think uh, it would be far more interesting to have a diversity like in some uh, other democracies. Uh, or republics, you know, to have a, a, a variety of political parties, um, and and you know, again, I think that would not only ease the divide among the country, uh, but I think it would bring about you know a new generation of candidates of different perspectives, um, and maybe modernize both parties because I think in many ways they're also outdated and not really in tune with today's voters. So, uh, guys, thank you again so much for the great conversation. Uh, again, important co- uh, topics that are going to continue uh, over the next few weeks. So I'm sure we'll be discussing them again as uh, things continue to develop. On behalf of Christopher Collin, Chris Chambers, uh, this is the Yard Sign, the most important and relevant podcast in politics. Now I'm going to take you to a conversation between Todd Jennings, Pinellas County Republican Party chairman, uh, who uh, very much uh, looks over a purple county and uh, talk about the 2020 election from his perspective and what he's doing to try to make it a red in November uh, uh, here at the end of the year. So at this time, it's my pleasure to introduce to you a friend from across the bridge. It's the chairman of the Pinellas County Republican Party. Joining me now, Todd Jennings. How you doing, buddy? Another day in paradise. You've got a lot better lighting over there than I do. Well, you know, it's kind of my thing. So, you know, I have a lot of fun with it. Uh, but I certainly don't have that beautiful naval hat behind you, uh, you know, and then all those fancy certificates. So I think you win this one. <laughs> uh, you know, I wanted to bring you on to kind of give us a local perspective on, uh, you know, not only uh, how recent events are kind of affecting uh, the 2020 election, but also to give people an understanding for those who may not be as actively involved in politics, but, you know, mostly watch the news, just try to stay informed as a voter as to really what happens at the local level, because I'll tell you, you know, just thinking back from before I got involved, uh, I don't think most people even know that there is a county uh, Republican organization that they can be a part of. Well, first, thanks for having me on, Johnny. I appreciate it. It's been a while since uh, we've connected. Um, I see yeah. you've, um, you know, gained something there during the, the quarantine. <laughs> um, but as, far, as far as national events, you know, we've, we've actually conducted a lot of um, polling and research uh, on this and um, an attorney's phone never stops ringing and yeah. you know believe it or not I, I don't foresee national events having a huge impact on down ballot races I mean obviously at the the federal level when you talk about the presidency and congressional races I think you're gonna see an impact there how I don't know yet um, but as far as you know the races we're concerned with on the county level, we have the most impact. Um, I don't think you're going to see a huge partisan split on those. You know, you see a big drop off uh, in interest after the presidential election, and then a bigger drop in interest after the congressional election. So there's a significant number of voters on both sides of the aisle that drop off once they get through those first two federal elections. Uh, and you'll see that a lot of the races down ballot tend to be more about name ID and vision and messaging. Well, and, and given our current circumstances with the quarantine, um, you know, even, you know, kind of putting aside the protests for just a minute, 
really this cycle could be incredibly interesting and almost an open season simply because you know candidates and campaigns haven't been able to go door to door like they used to they haven't been able to hold fundraising the way that they used to how do you see some of the local candidates work around those obstacles well i've seen a lot of them try to do you know meet and greets through zoom instead of uh coffee shops or bar and grills um obviously there's been some attempts to you know, do fundraising through the internet. They're obviously having to make it a lot of calls to, to fundraise. Uh, I do know that some of the candidates are starting to get out and knock on doors again, but they're being careful about, you know, how they do that. Maybe they knock on somebody's door, they wear gloves, they stand back um, in case the person has concerns about the, the pandemic still. So, I mean, they're working around it. I think that now we're all, that we're all back to work and, and we're about to, we're entering phase two of Governor DeSantis's plan. Uh, I think kind of the stigma around campaigning and fundraising is finally being lifted. You know, a lot of candidates took heat in April and May when they were continuing to uh, uh, move forward with their activities on those fronts. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, and we've actually had a couple candidates on uh, from one of the hottest races in the country, Congressional District 13 here in Florida. Uh, you have a really strong slate of candidates there um, for a primary matchup. And then, of course, it's a very purple district, um, maybe one of the few winnable districts uh, that we have here in Florida. Uh, from your perspective, how's that shaping up? And, and how are you feeling, I mean, uh, you know, having such a great slate of candidates uh, to go head-to-head -head with Charlie Chris in November? Well, first, I, th I think you hit on the head earlier when you talked about um, kind of the uncertainty of how this will all shake out in November, given what's happened. Um, and, and I've told candidates or potential candidates, folks who have come to me asking about races and whether or not to get in or whether or not a race is winnable, I've told them this election cycle, I mean, anything is possible. Uh, and, yeah. you know, Charlie Crist has phenomenal name ID in Pinellas County. It is a purple district. I think it leans a little bit um, uh, to his advantage just because of who he is and how long he's been here. But we are fortunate to have several candidates that, um, you know, have hit the ground with fundraising, have good messaging, have um, interesting stories, you know, good stories from where they're from there's there's a lot of diversity in the field so uh i'm positive that um you know whoever uh may win the primary will we'll give charlie a fight and give us a chance of uh taking cd13 back yeah well I mean, and again um to kind of you know just drop a little bit of chum in the water uh you know charlie doesn't have the best record when it comes to race relations uh, and uh, those have certainly been some of the cases that have been made, you know, in previous uh, efforts of his to get to elected office that hindered him. And I wonder, you know, again, if uh, the nominee uh, that goes head to head uh, with him will try to make a case of those, especially given that you have, in fact, uh, three minority women that are vying to run against Charlie Crest. Uh, you know, I think that really makes a strong case for your organization in terms of uh, attracting uh, diversity of candidates. And also, uh, I think it's a better representation of uh, the county. Do you agree? I agree. And as far as, as that's concerned, I'm not sure even in this environment how that would play out. You know, every time he's run for office in recent years, the, the chain gang Charlie memes have come out and the attacks have come out and uh, they've seemed to have had a negative impact. So I'm not sure how that 
will play out uh, in this election. I'm not sure if any of the candidates are planning to use that. Um, but I, I think by the time we get to September, October, uh, I think a lot of this stuff is going to be uh, out of the memory banks. We talk about COVID, we talk about these um, uh, riots and protests. I think it's you know going to be back to, hey, we had some economic uh, troubles due to the pandemic. Um, we don't know what the pandemic is going to bring. You know, you look at what's happening in places like Brazil uh, and South America. There, there's there's a huge economic impact globally, um, and I think once we get to past the primary into the fall, I think it's going to be about the economy as it usually is. Well, you know, and and that's a that's a great kind of little peek, you know, towards uh, you know the next few months. But uh, let's say from today, looking back. Uh, given the obstacles that uh, we discussed in terms of campaigning, uh, you as a chairman and as a, the, you know as the organization, you know the Republican Party for Pinellas County, uh, what did you guys do to adjust uh, in terms of continuing to uh, you know spread the message, keep people engaged, fired up about November? Obviously, we had to do most of that on social media. We couldn't meet, so we had you know Gus Congressman Bill Arrakis. Uh, gave us an address through social media. Uh, we haven't been able to do our typical canvassing. Fortunately, the Trump campaign uh, was on the ball with this from the beginning. You know, the Trump victory um, folks had a had a phenomenal um, canvassing um, via t- telephone call through their website and app. And so we we worked hard uh, with them to make sure we get volunteers and people to sign up for that. Um, presently, I mean, it's starting to get back to business as usual. Uh, the Trump campaign and RPOF are going to be working out of our office here in Pinellas County. Uh, we're going to start ramping up our electioneering activities pretty soon. Um, the, the biggest impact from COVID for us was fundraising. We typically have a, a Lincoln Day dinner uh, in the spring. We had a very successful Reagan Day dinner in the fall, and that's going to be pushed back. We're trying to um, schedule a and, and put together a dinner for August now. Uh, and we're hopeful that the, the environment will allow for that uh, at that point. Yeah, well, again, you know, you mentioned, you know, from a fundraising standpoint, everything's been affected, you know, from your local races, which they often have trouble uh, fundraising as it is, uh, you know, right. and given these circumstances, that's made that even more challenging. Uh, it is. And we're going to have a very, very active cycle here in Pinellas. As you know, for the first time in a long time, we've uh, got an open supervisor election seat. Um, fortunately, we have a great candidate in Julie Marcus. She was a lieutenant of um, Deb Clark's for, for many years. You know, Deb was one of the best supervisor elections in the state. Um, so we're confident that we could help get her across the finish line. We've got a challenger to, to County Commissioner Charlie Justice, a challenger to State Representatives Ben Diamond and Jen Webb. Uh, we've got a phenomenal conservative uh, school board candidate, Stephanie, Ma- Stephanie Meyer. So, you know, we have our hands full and, you know, we're hopeful that we can um, uh, do what we need to do to raise money to help the candidates before before the fall hits. Now, real quick, uh, you know, to uh, not sweep it under the rug because it's certainly something that needs to be addressed. And I don't want to get into it because it's it's almost unnecessary, but I certainly want to get uh, your perspective on this, you know, here in Hillsborough County, we had the county Republican Party chairman make some racist remarks in regards to the protesting, the rioters, the looting that's happening right now. Um, 
and, uh, and and certainly this isn't the first time that he's had an issue with statements that he's made, things that he's posted on social media. Um, you know, he tries to dismiss it as private statements when he's done so publicly uh, because, you know, he does it on a, on a public platform. Um, give some people an insight, again, for those who are not involved at the local level with the Republican Party, exactly what the chairman does, what he's responsible for, especially in an election year. Well, first, I'll say, you know, first, the, the RNC focuses on federal elections. So the presidency, uh, the Senate representatives, uh, Republican Party of Florida, their bread and butter is at the state level. And then the county parties, it, it's the local elections where we can have the most impact. So that's school board, county commission, um, you know, judicial races. We're fortunate here in Pinellas. We are one of the only counties in the state that can actually endorse and get involved in judicial races uh, because our former chairman, Paul Bettinghouse, sued the state of Florida uh, to get that law declared unconstitutional, and it was by a local circuit court judge. So county commission, school board, judges, um, state, you know, even state house races, we can, we can help, and that's where our bread and butter is. Um, you know, as a chairman, I think my responsibility first and foremost is to ensure that uh, well, to protect the organization, uh, to make sure that we are credible and that we are relevant so that we can continue to be a vehicle uh, for grassroots and financial support for local candidates. Um, if the organization isn't credible, and quite frankly, there are a lot of county parties on both sides of the, the uh, on both the Republican Democrat parties across the, the country that are not credible and they don't really have an impact on their local uh, uh, races and candidates. Uh, in Pinellas, uh, we have been a credible and relevant organization for several decades. And uh, one of my priorities is to, to maintain that credibility so we can continue to, to function as we have. Well, and also to give uh, some people a perspective on really how different Pinellas County is, I would say, than maybe most counties throughout Florida. Um, I mean, there is a huge amount of baggage that you carry as the chairman because of the number of incorporated cities within the county. Um, I don't know that number off the top of your head, but uh, I mean, what's the number of elections that are happening on any given year within Pinellas County? Well, I mean, that obviously changes with, with, every, with every season, but I mean, with uh, 24 municipalities, um, obviously St. Petersburg, is typically uh, the center of both parties' efforts, um, but but that's starting to change. Um, I can tell you that Democrats on a state and local level are really starting to get more involved in um, uh, local municipal elections, even in places like Dunedin and Safety Harbor. Um, they're really starting to target. Um, those institutions where they feel they can become de facto legislators, um, which is of course why the, the state house's efforts to kind of curb some of the local abuses uh, have been so necessary. Now, um, you'll hear people here cry about home rule, um, but I think that the state legislature has acted appropriately over the past few years to ensure that home rule doesn't involve home abuse. Yeah, no, and that's a great point, you know, because um, as I say, oftentimes, you know, your local elections, your local government is where, uh, you know, the decisions are made that are going to impact you the most. 
right? Those are the folks that are going to raise your taxes. Those are the folks that are, you know, decide how your money, how your tax dollars are spent, you know, at the micro level, you know, people love to uh, watch the federal races uh, and, and, and even the statewide races, but oftentimes they don't realize they're most affected by the city council races, you know, by these county commission races. And that's really the, those decisions are the ones that affect you on a daily basis. That's true. Um, and you know, it's candidates are increasingly relying more on us and coming more to us uh, with issues that they're facing in those elections, which is something that is not new, but it's becoming more prevalent. Well, uh, you know, thank you again for joining us here on the yard sign. I appreciate you, Todd, and I appreciate all the work that uh, you've been doing now for uh, the past year. I believe you're in your second year, right, as a chairman? Yeah, yeah, I've been chairman since December of 2018 already. Wow. Wow, that's, yeah, that's crazy. Well, uh, as things ease up, I certainly hope to be at your next meeting. Uh, if people want to get involved, what do they need to do? Uh, they can go to um, PinellasRepublicans.com. We've got a, a brand new website, um, and uh, our address is there. If they want to come in the office, we've got uh, a place for them to sign up for our newsletter and updates. Uh, they can sign up to volunteer. They can donate. Um, we also are uh, very present on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm guessing, a, I'm guessing they can pick up. I'm guessing they can pick up a few yard signs. They can. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much again for joining me, man. It's great to talk to you. Great to catch up. And uh, like I said, I'm hoping to see you soon. Yep. Yep. Take care of that family. <laughs>